America's farmers produce high quality products that feed communities here at home and across the globe. And they're some of the most efficient producers in the world. But global subsidies threaten the livelihood of America's farmers and ranchers. Every year, four nations funnel millions of dollars to prop up their inefficient producers or otherwise protect them through tariff, non-tariff trade barriers. This negatively impacts trade and harms consumers and taxpayers alike. My guest today is here to discuss the harm caused by these foreign farm subsidies. Dr. Darren Hudson is the director of the International Center for Agricultural Competitiveness at Texas Tech University, my alma mater. Thank you, Dr. Hudson, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. The International Center of Agricultural Competitiveness maintains a database of agricultural subsidies. What are the most common types of support around the globe? Well, you know, it depends on the commodity. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're looking at sugar, for example, um, you know, almost every major producing country uses some sort of import restriction. So an import tariff or an import quota type of relationship. A big swath of those use production subsidies, so uh, credits for fertilizer seed uh, mechanization, interest rates, uh, subsidies, those sorts of things. And then you add on um, you know, the growing use of uh, ethanol mandates as one of the indirect subsidies uh, you know, for sugar. And so I think you know, when you look at them combined together, uh, you run into fairly substantial uh, trade barriers from these major producing and exporting countries. You know, you mentioned it, it is amazing the diversity of tools that are used, even, even tax policy, or better said, the lack of tax policy mm -hmm. in certain countries where, where, you know, farm income is just simply not taxed. Um, you know, the, the number of tools that are used by these nations, very creative, but it's kind of true that every nation wants to support its producers in some way, right? Yeah, if you look at, uh, I mean, even if you go way back to the GATT and the, the establishment of the WTO, agriculture was treated completely differently than a lot of uh, industrial products because most countries saw agriculture as a strategic asset. Um, they were going to protect those sectors. Um, and even now, as we've, we've torn down a lot of barriers, um, you know, there are sort of no-goes for a lot of countries. Uh, so if you look at Japan, for example, rice is an absolute no-go. They're not going to change their subsidization policy uh, for any particular reason. So I, yes, most countries have some form of subsidization or some form of protection of, of their agricultural producers. Now, obviously, they're focused on the ones where, you know, they produce a lot of a particular good. Man, it's fascinating when you really dig into it. No one has dug into it better than you have nationally through the publication of this database. We often talk about within Farm Policy Facts and, and other groups we work with about how these, these wealthy foreign governments is actually the entity that the U.S. farmer is competing against um, because of these tools and subsidization and protection mechanisms that are, that are put in place. But... Maybe talk to a little bit just about how these these uh, this foreign competition directly impacts the U.S. farmer. Well, obviously, when you when you look at um, the way that uh, a lot of these countries subsidize, they generate substantial overproduction, uh, and so that overproduction puts pressure on on global prices. And those global prices then you know come back to the U.S. Um, U.S. producer. 
um, that they have to face. They have to sell into that market. They have to compete with those low priced or low, uh, low cost goods in an international market. And so this has a, you know, it has a direct effect on producers through that mechanism. It has indirect effects on the way that, um, other commodities as a result of these subsidies get planted or, or, you know, those markets get distorted around the world. And then, you know, other producers face, um, you know, you know, for example, a, a cotton producer is going to face the impacts of the sugar subsidy in Brazil because of the way that um, those subsidies encourage cotton production as well as, as sugarcane production because of similar production uh, land bases and things like that. So a lot of those factors tie together indirectly, but the direct effect is that, you know, we're competing against low price sugar or low price cotton produced in these other countries around the world. Yeah, uh, that, that larger economic picture is so important. But then also, how often do you, do you just see markets cut off by a non-tariff trade barrier or some um, uh, export restriction or import restriction that a foreign uh, country would place on U.S. producers? Absolutely. I, I, you know, oftentimes what you see are uh, non-tariff barriers. So, for, for example, uh, a, a food safety or, or a, um, you know, a phytosanitary or uh, sanitary restriction in, in the terms of WTO, but they become a, a, a means by which countries can stop an importation of a product because they want to punish producers from a particular yeah. area. Yeah. And there's no, there's no easy mechanism out of it because the WTO offers up these, these mechanisms to, uh, uh, for legitimate protection of domestic markets from, say, you know, a, a foot and mouth disease in cattle, for example. Yeah. But you know, they're often used as a non-tariff barrier just, just simply to restrict yeah. GMOs, non-GMOs, you know, yeah. all those are all, all mechanisms that are being used. Absolutely. We've had to fight those battles. So uh, I know obviously we're in the midst of what is described by our president of the United States as a trade war right now. And we are levying some of these tariffs upon uh, uh, foreign nations as the United States of America. But where do we stack up? Where, where does the U.S. rank? Uh, so we do things to protect our farmers, to promote our farmers. We have U.S. farm policy. We have uh, uh, an international uh, uh, tariff policy that's, that's very limited. But I, I want you to talk about it. Where does the U.S. stack up relative to other uh, competing countries that we compete with? Well, again, it, it depends on, on the product that you're talking about and the form in which we subsidize or protect. Um, you know, see, if you take sugar, for example, it's a no-cost program to the U.S. taxpayer. Um, it's, it's simply an import quota system that, uh, you know, we, we have uh, maintained that, have maintained that. But we've relaxed those over the years uh, and increased the amount of imports from, from foreign countries. But then you compare that to, say, cotton, where, um, you know, if you look at the level of subsidization, we're, we're below our agreed upon subsidy levels yeah. uh, in the World Trade Organization, where a country like China is in many years 10 times its agreed upon limit uh, in, in terms of level of subsidies. And so, you know, we're facing competition. And, and as you and I both know, uh, you know, the data are very clear. The amount of money that we spend on agriculture has declined over time. You know, so if we go back to the, you know, the, the late 70s, early 80s, and we go to today, you know, we're, we're not subsidizing it near the rate we we were at that point. Um, and so we've met our commitments where other countries are, have not, um, and they've gotten a lot of exemptions or sort of passovers by the WTO, which is, 
you know, led to basically unfair trade practices that the president has referenced that uh, countries like China have used. They've abused their, their um, you know, their designation as a, as a developing country. Um, you know, we did win a case on grains recently in the yeah. WTO, but grains are just the, just the tip of the iceberg where yeah. China's concerned. Rice and wheat and corn. Absolutely. Yeah. So you would say the U.S. is really a good actor in the international marketplace and really some of the current, I guess, more aggressive trade posture is a, a deliberate attempt to try and bring those other our foreign competitors to account. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the data is clear that the, the the countries that the president has cited, that the USTR has cited, you know, others have talked about China in particular, India, Brazil, are all clearly in violation of their WTO agreements. Uh, and you know, the U.S. has been a good actor in attempting to lead those um, in, in terms of the decline in subsidies and meeting those yeah, commitments. Yeah, almost kind of altruistically before, and maybe with a little bit more aggressive posture these days. You've mentioned a bit about sugar. It's common, commonly said that sugar is one of the world's most distorted commodity markets. And, and uh, your most recent study examined the impact of foreign subsidies on the global sugar industry. What did you find in that study particularly? Well, I think, you know, we, we looked at a, a set of countries, I think it was about 20, 21 countries that represented over 80% of the global exports, about 60% of the production consumption um, out there in the, in the globe. And, and we looked at those countries um, in terms of what they were using and how they were using uh, different sorts of trade barriers and subsidization practices. Mm -hmm. And what we found is, you know, what we might expect is that the large players subsidize the most. They're the most aggressive about the subsidies. So China, India, Brazil, yeah. Thailand, you know, places like that in terms of the sugar market, they're all using import restrictions. They're all using some form of either production, direct production subsidy or indirect payment, uh, you know, uh, market payment to, to producers. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they, the, the price level uh, you know, I would have to, you know, we'd have to run some sophisticated models to figure out exactly. But, um, you know, it's, it's clear that the price level in sugar is half of what it, it could be in the absence of those kind of distortionary policies. And we're not talking about one country. We're talking about a coupling of all these countries behaving this way is just absolutely destroying, you know, the international sugar market. That's remarkable. When you look at the world, government subsidies are just plain simple driving overproduction of sugar causing prices to fall below what it costs to produce sugar. And as prices fall, governments increase their subsidies to support the sugar even more. It's a cycle. So you've mentioned a bit about it, but which nations are largely driving this, this vicious cycle of subsidies? Uh, I mean, you, know, if it, it, you could look at a couple of things. And on one hand are uh, tariffs, um, you know, so the, the restriction on imported sugar uh, across those countries. And of course, the elevated, the, the higher the tariff rate, the more protective that is. And so you, you, you can look at a place like Turkey, for example, with over 100% tariff on, on imported sugar. Um, you know, countries like India, Mexico, China, they're all in the above 30% tariffs, many of them at 50% tariffs. Uh, and so those are, you know, again, the egregious players. But if you look at direct income or, or sort of the value of, of the imports and, and subsidy programs, the European Union is the biggest, hmm. you know. Uh, you know, the data provided by, uh, by the OECD 
sort of indicates that if you look at, at, uh, at in the European Union, European Union is about $2.5 billion in, in transfers to producers, single commodity transfer. Yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. China's at a billion. Um, you know, and so the other players are, are down there. Japan is, is big uh, as an importer, um, you know, but all of these places are at 13 or, or three, four uh, hundred million dollars. Uh, compare that to a relatively free market like Australia, which is, you know, at about $16 million, you know. So, and, and the U.S., it actually falls at the bottom end of that spectrum in terms of the, the value that's including the, the impacts of the Im, import quotas. Uh, the value to uh, individual sugar producers is, is relatively small compared to a lot of these countries. That's great data. And it's a, it's a great study. I'd really commend it to all of our listeners i tell you one other thing that OECD also uh, concentrates on is how ag subsidies can actually hinder impact or hinder efforts to improve uh, agricultural productivity and sustainability. Can you tell us more about the relationship between subsidies and sustainability? Well, so subsidies, um, you know, when we, when we look at how subsidies are constructed in a lot of these countries, especially like input subsidies, things like that, they're really focused on the least efficient producers and they're there to prop those producers up. And we understand, I mean, there's a social goal of trying to keep producers going and in business and that way of life and, and that sort of thing. But the way they target their subsidies actually decreases the incentive to become, you know, efficient. Because if you're paying for my fertilizer or you're paying for my seed, why do I care how efficient I am with that? Uh, and so, what happens is it decreases the incentive for, for productivity gains and cost uh, decreases. Um, and that's to the detriment of everybody. I mean, when we look at what are the impacts of, of less productivity and less sustainability, you know, higher water use, higher chemical use, yeah. uh, larger greenhouse gas emissions, all those sorts of things that we tie as bads, you know, economic and social bads. So those subsidies don't help us. They don't allow those or provide the incentive for those producers to innovate. That is really interesting. So would you agree, from your studies, would you agree with the, the, uh, the notion that the U.S. producer is not only the most efficient, but also their practices are the most environmentally sustainable. They're, they, they cause the least footprint on, on the environment. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, if we look at it, um, you know, sort of across the board on producers of all types of commodities. Um, every one of our producer groups, because of the economics, because we live, you know, in, in, a, in a much more free system, the economics have driven them to become more efficient, you know, more output per unit of input, uh, you know, the productivity measure. And what that's done is, is increase the sustainability um, you know, because we're using less water, less chemical, less seed, less land, yeah. uh, you know, to produce the same amount of good. I mean, you know, having a conversation the other day at a meeting and we were talking about the number of acres planted for a 20 million bale uh, cotton, cotton crop, crop. Yeah. In, you know, in 1970 versus today. And, and you, know, you know, we've seen a 30%, 40% reduction in the number of acres it takes to produce the same amount of goods. And all of that is technological driven, and all of that is because the producers have adopted that. They've done it in part to maintain, uh, you know, to maintain competitiveness in the world market. Um, you know, they've faced those pressures. 
But because they face those pressures um, in that way, they've innovated where many other countries have not. Farmers are famously cash poor, land rich, mm -hmm. but it is their greatest asset, that land, and they naturally want to pass it down to the next generation mm -hmm. better than it was passed to them. Healthier soils that are more productive, right. more fertile. Right. Um, and I think that has a huge impact. All right. Well, you you are a wealth of knowledge. We could go on forever. But let me just ask you to kind of pontificate on a big level. What's it going to take to get to a freer and fairer, fairer global? We could go to the sugar market or let's just say the agricultural markets more generally. Well, you know, it takes a commitment and a belief in the system that Yes, there are going to be dislocations around the world when you free the system up. But what those dislocations do is create opportunities for other types of production, other uses of, those, of that land. Um, and you know, when you buy into and, you, and you, you accept the reality that this is how that system works, then once you get to much more efficient allocation of resources, you know, um, you know, are we going to produce everything that we produce today in a world market that's free of subsidies? Probably not, but that's okay. Yeah. Other places are also not going to produce those things. Now, they're going to produce other things that, that matter. I mean, you know, if you look, for example, at our cattle production system, gosh, we, we're, we're so efficient. We get so many pounds of beef uh, off an acre of land compared to Brazil that has many more cattle. Yeah. But in a world market where they're having to face that competition, they're not going to use that land resource in the same way. Yeah. And so I think, you know, it, it takes a commitment. And, and the U.S. is trying to, I think, through example, provide leadership to show this is the path forward. Um, but there's a lot of headwinds. Uh, you know, there's a lot of social headwinds and, and those are hard to overcome. But, uh, but we need to educate the world that this transition is, is going to happen. Prepare yourself for it and get ready to move. Well, in terms of educating the world, you've done a great job today. You're a great academic and educator. And from this paper to, to what you do in the classroom, uh, it is so important. And I want to say thanks uh, for your work on behalf of, of really a more efficient world uh, system, uh, but on behalf of U.S. producers and the productive agriculture. This is going to do it for this episode of Groundwork. Be sure to check out other episodes and find more policy insight at farmpolicyfacts.com. I'm Tom Sell.